Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Lamentations chapter 3, roughly in the center of your Bible, page 688. The Bible's provided for you in the pew. We've been studying the minor prophets, the smaller books. This is a major prophet, just means it's larger. The prophets we've studied so far are about 200 years older than this one. Jeremiah wrote this one. It's a prophet to the southern part of Israel called Judah. For 400 years, God had been warning the people of Israel, the north and the south, that um, if they did not leave their idols and their materialism, their focus on themselves and turn to the Lord, he was going to have to discipline them more severely by taking them into foreign captivity. Despite that warning, the children of Israel and Judah continued to pursue their selfish ways, and God sent the Babylonians to take them hostage for 70 years. Jeremiah, this prophet, the weeping prophet, he's sometimes called, especially because of this book, which just means weeping, sorrow, lament. Though he had been preaching to them, warning them, threatening them with God's discipline, when it happens, when an an evil empire takes the people of God into captivity, Jeremiah nevertheless goes with them into their same captivity. He's still their pastor. He goes with them into their captivity and on their behalf, feeling their pain, he voices his sorrow to the Lord. No doubt that we're sinners, but why this? There are five poems in the book of Lamentations. You could call them funeral speeches. Ultimately, they were hymns. These were hymns that were written to be sung in the worship of God. God caused the Holy Spirit to write these words down that we might have them today and they might guide our worship. We begin reading in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 1. This really is the peak, or we could say the nadir of Jeremiah's lament. I am the man. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He's a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He he turned aside my steps, tore me to pieces, and made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. 
He has made my teeth grind on gravel, had made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it. It's bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait patiently, quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. Though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken? And it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray together. Oh, Lord, would you open our eyes to see wonderfully, powerfully healing words from this portion of the gospel as it appears in the Old Testament. In Jesus' name we pray, God's people said together, amen. When I was a student in seminary, one of my very best friends, a fellow student, was taken from this world very much like our friend Liza was on the campus of our seminary. A crime never solved. Her father was a famous Presbyterian minister in Scotland. He was the moderator of the Free Church of Scotland. Dr. McIntosh heard about his daughter's death. He, he told one of my professors, he said, when I heard that Elizabeth was dead, I knew the passages of Scripture to turn to. I knew the Psalms to read. I knew the New Testament epistles that would give me hope in the resurrection. I knew the places to turn in my Bible, but every one I read, not one of them gave me comfort initially. Because, he said to my professor, Dr. Calhoun, because we remember from our confession of faith, it is the Spirit 
and the Word. It is the Spirit that makes the Word effectual unto salvation. It is the Spirit of God that must hover on these words that we have read and accompanying them, work them into our hearts and cause us to believe them, make them believable. But I realized something late last night as I was thinking about your abundant love to this city, to this hurting family, the other hurting families in this congregation who have experienced similar losses. I realized something that I might have missed in this sermon if, I, if the Lord had not brought it, that it is the Spirit working by and with the Word in the church. The Spirit, yes, accompanies the private reading of the Word, but our confession reflecting the Scripture's emphases says the Spirit works in the reading of the Word, especially the preaching of the Word, meaning in the context of worship. Then the, the Spirit works with the Word, by and with the Word, not just in the preaching and worship of the church, but as the church is gathered, as the church deploys, as the church makes its way as you have to hurting people, that is where the Word of God is especially effective. Now, sometimes in preaching a sermon like this and putting forth such a proposition, it's necessary to make an additional proof. I want to do that by turning you, I don't often turn you to other passages of Scripture, but Ephesians chapter 3. Don't worry if you can't find it, I'll read it to you. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to the end of the chapter, and I want you to listen for these three golden strands woven together, the Spirit and the Word in the church. For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened. You is plural. It is strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you all, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you all may be filled with all the fullness of God." Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You have done this week and this morning what is essential and seeing the word go forth with power, it is to gather in the context of the church and by the Spirit's work, experience it to be effectual unto comfort and to instruction and to hope. So now that you're here, what should we do? What should you do in the future? When tragedies come, and they will, 
What should we do? Jeremiah shows us. He shows us four things at least in, these, in this very long chapter, the peak of his lament. He shows us, first of all, that we must pour out our feelings to God. These are the points I made to you off the cuff last week, but in further reflection, I'm more convinced than ever they come from this text. We pour out our feelings to God. That's what he shows us by his example in verses 1 through 20. Jeremiah is a faithful prophet of God. He's a man of the, of the word. He's a loyal disciple of the Lord. But uh, what he says here could be interpreted as very disrespectful, can't it? Here is, uh, uh, here is a man of God who, who says in these verses, Everything that is contrary to what we learn from David about God in Psalm 23. David says that his rod and his staff, they comfort me. Here, Jeremiah says, no, his rod and his staff, they punish me and drive me away. Jeremiah, the prophet of God, never mentions the name of God for 20 verses speaks of him in the third person as if he's left and he'll never return. Jeremiah pours out his feelings by saying in verses one through three, God is a liar. He's not true to his promises to be a good shepherd. He says in verses four to nine, you have abandoned us. Verse nine, he said, or verse six, he says, you've made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. Reminiscent of the psalmist in Psalm 88. Again, another passage written to be sung in worship, but it has no positive resolution. It just ends with, the darkness is my closest friend. You have made me to dwell in darkness. He says in verses 10 to 18, you're a murderer. You're a tormentor, verse 16, he made my teeth grind on gravel, made me cower in ashes, my soul is bereft of peace. Verses 14 and 15, you are a joke and you make me a joke among those to whom I've testified that I am a follower of yours. Verses 19 and 20, he says, I battle with intrusive thoughts. I continually remember and I'm bowed down with the trauma of, of Jerusalem being sacked and the, no, the rings being put in our nose and dragged to Babylon like animals. Where are you? Jeremiah beats his fists on the chest of God. And he says it in church. I remember when I was a little boy and I was battling extreme anxiety and depression and we were making trips along Highway 72 back and forth from my town in Alabama to Memphis running all kinds of tests and so forth trying to figure out what was wrong with my brain because kids weren't supposed to be depressed. One night we came back home and my dad said, uh, maybe you're angry. Why don't you just let out your anger? Why don't you take out your anger on me? He rolled up a piece of newspaper and he said, why don't you just beat me with this? I said, I can't do that. 
No, I want you to. So I tapped him on the head. But then I hit him harder. And I hit him and I hit him and I hit him. And I hit him until I ran out of strength and collapsed into his arms. His loving embrace. And that's what you see Jeremiah doing here. In verse 21, he says, I call this to mind. While I am ranting against you, when I have cathartically poured out all my feelings against you and you have not rebutted me, you have not corrected me, you have not punished me, oh God, I have fallen into your arms. I have hope and this is what I confess. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You're my everything. You're my portion. You are my hope. Where does he get those words? He gets them from having repeated them, from having heard them week after week after week in worship. These three words are the, 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 the stars of the covenantal constellation in Scripture, love and mercy and faithfulness. You line up these three stars and you find God. You look at God, you'll always find these three, these three stars, love and mercy and faithfulness. Love, not just any love, has said love, absolutely covenantally faithful love set in concrete. And not just any mercy, but mercy that comes out of the womb of God. It's a word for womb. Faithfulness, emunah, amen, amen. Meaning it's settled, it's over. God will never be untrue. Love, mercy, faithfulness. He heard it over and over again. He repeated it in that Old Testament catechism from Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The revelation of the very center of God's being. I am the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and mercy. Forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin. Keeping loving kindness to thousands. But will never leave the guilty unpunished. He repeated that as a catechism every week, maybe every night. It was cut deeply, like a, like a deep scar, like a deep groove. It was gray engraved into his heart and his mind so that when he spent all of his energy in pouring out his, his feelings to the Lord, he settled on this profession of faith. So must you and I. When God disappoints, when evil is beyond our understanding, it always is. When it's impossible to understand why we are suffering, we camp on these two points that, uh, that uh, uh, Jeremiah uh, describes very particularly. Number one, that God is good. And number two, in verses 26 to 20, uh, God, is, uh, God is love and God is good in verses 25 to 27. God is, God is loving and God is good. 
You say, how can those possibly go together? How can God be loving? How can he be good and there still be evil? How can he allow that to be? How could he allow it into his good creation? Every religion tries to answer that question. The Bible doesn't answer. The Bible answers how it got here. Through the devil, through sin. But why? It only answers this. It says, no matter what you don't understand about God, you may know this. He is good and he is loving. How can that be counted on? Because the solution he brings to evil is to make himself a victim of it. He has entered into our pain. He has entered into our evil. He has made himself the ultimate victim of the punishment and the judgment that we deserve. So no matter how much we may be confounded by what God allows to happen, we must be even more confounded by a God who would say, the way I'm going to solve it is by becoming a victim of it. I'm going to put myself in the grave. I'm going to drive myself to hell, and I'm going to face it there, and with the righteousness of my life rise in victory over it. And those who put those faith in me will have their sins forgiven, the judgment taken away, and will someday be changed from mortality into immortality, their bodies rescued from their bondage to decay and perfectly conformed to mine. That is goodness, and that is love. We profess the faith that our fathers and mothers stretching back to the beginning of redemptive history have professed. How did Jeremiah get to it? He got to it by means of the cross, that cross I've just described. You say, wait a minute, Jeremiah was speaking 500 years before Jesus was even born. Yes, but Jeremiah, by, by God's spirit, was able to see ahead to the Messiah he would prepare, and he had known about it from weekly worship in the temple and, and this is what he would have learned from that catechism that we, recorded, that we, that we repeated earlier. That, that the, the Lord who is compassionate and, and gracious and slow to anger is the one who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. The word is to lift up, to lift up. He lifts up iniquity, transgression, and sin. What is the image? Except the one that was realized in the Old Testament ritual, yearly ritual of worship on the Day of Atonement when the sins of the people were symbolically placed on the head of the scapegoat and the, the goat was slapped in the rear end and driven over into the wilderness never to be seen again. And uh, the picture was just like your sins disappeared symbolically with that goat, they disappear by the forgiveness of God. But it had to be repeated every year because that was not the final answer. The final answer to the people's sin would come not in the form of a goat, but in the spotless Lamb of God who would be lifted up on the cross and there bear our sins placed on him by faith. And there he would lift up off of us 
iniquity, transgression, and sin, every conceivable form of sin and evil, and bury it so that we never suffer judgment for it. Believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to understand this. There may be a thousand reasons for the suffering and the evil that you are experiencing in your life. There may be a thousand different purposes for them, but one of them can never be that God is punishing you and judging you. That judgment, that condemnation has been nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. Bless the Lord. It is well with our souls even if our lives are presently troubled. We pour out our feelings. We profess our faith. And we pursue shalom. Jeremiah makes that point in the remaining part of chapter 3. He says in verses 28 to 30 and verses 34 to 36 that we must release vengeance. We pray for peace. We pursue peace in our city. And that means we first must release vengeance unto the Lord. Verses 31 to 33. We remember his loving purposes for suffering, even discipline. They always come from his heart and his heart of love. They are not judgment and punishment on believers. Uh, We rely on future justice, verses 37 to 39. He will make all things right. And then we must repair our city. Jeremiah made that point earlier. Jeremiah 29, the book just before, passage that our pastor Sandy Wilson always uh, frequently brought our attention to, Jeremiah 29 Verses four and following, Jeremiah said this, this is what you are to do when you go into captivity. Yes, Israel, Judah, you are finally going to be disciplined for your sin, but I want you to know that even there, the Lord will have a redemptive purpose for you. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. In defiant hope, he says effectively, I want you to build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. I want you to take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city or seek the peace, the shalom of God. Not for Jerusalem but for the city where you are in Babylon, where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and don't listen to the dreams they dream, for it is a lie that they're prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Yes, we must grieve and we must sorrow and we must pound our fists on the chest of God. But we must also, as the choir so beautifully sang that Craig Courtney piece to us, we must walk and walk in the light of Jesus 
and his word following his footsteps, which includes, as we say in our mission, retelling the gospel, reimagining the church and city according to scripture, and repairing what is broken. We must not listen to those prophets around our country, maybe even in our city, who tell us that we must leave this city, abandon this city. It's hopeless. Get out of there. Go to a safe place. There is no safe place. Those are false prophets. Prophets from God never tell the people of God to run and cower. You see, no matter where you are, even if you're in captivity, my light in you is more powerful than the darkness. We must resist those false prophets who simplistically say the answer to this is letting everyone out of the prison or putting everyone in the prison. We must listen to the prophets who come from God's word who say you take the peace of God, the shalom of God to the root of the problem, which is first of all to center yourself in the gospel of Jesus Christ. My sin, oh, the bliss of the glorious thought. My sin must go on the cross. I need the gospel. If God can forgive me, if God can do redemptive work in me, he can do it in anyone else, and then become a contagious witness to the same and share it with others who don't know him. To call people by your example to go to church, to be in the fellowship, in the knownness of the church community. It is to take the gospel to the root of the problem, even in this city, in the most vulnerable places, to those children who are traumatized in their earliest days, not hearing positive words, not being read to, not being cared for, those women, those vulnerable ones who are being traumatized, taking the good news to them that they don't continue to live out that damage to their souls and minds. You wonder what to do. One of our old elders, I can say it because he's not in this service. One of our old elders came up here today and told me, tell those people, tell our people, tell us, he said. Tell us. Ask yourself what you individually can do. Tell us, he said, tell us to quit criticizing everybody else. Tell us to quit laying blame on politicians or on court systems or on one another. Tell us to ask ourselves, what can I do? We've cut down a lot of trees to tell, give you ideas. The information rack outside of the information, on the other side of the information desk, here's a way to get involved in your very own neighborhood, in your community, through parishes. Here's a listing of our world missionaries who are taking the gospel and the light to the darkest places of the world. Here's, here are people you can be involved with, efforts you can support. Here's one of all of the opportunities we have in this city that we're involved with that are mostly 
focused on children, at-risk youth. Surely, in those sources, you can find at least one thing. Finally, we must pray with Jesus, who is praying for us. He prays with feeling for us. We see it in John 11 when he stands outside the tomb of Lazarus and he is angry and weeping at the same time. He is the one who is, who is professing the ancient faith. He is the profession of the ancient faith because, as Hebrews 13, 8 says, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the one who enables us to pursue the repair of our city because as the writer of Hebrews says at the end of of Hebrews in chapter 13, 14 and following, he says that Christ was put outside the gate. He was put outside the city. He was crucified outside the city that he might build a new city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And he calls us, the writer of Hebrews says, to join him in it. To rebuild, to build the city of God, to see the kingdom of God come to bear on earth as it is in heaven. Each of us can play a part in that no matter how small, no matter how old, no matter how young, no matter how unworthy your conscience tells you you are. You're able to pursue the peace of the city because of Jesus. And it starts with what you've done today. I was preaching at a conference once in Colorado, in the Sangre de Cristo mountain range, and the favorite activity of campers there was to hike up to uh, a mountain peak called Horn Peak. A couple of my friends made the hike that day. One of them was the president of the Covenant Seminary, and he and his friend, who were in excellent shape, went up to the top. But when they started to started their descent, fog set in on the mountain and covered the trail, and they got lost. They got lost deeply in the woods. They were supposed to be home long before dark because you can't live up there after dark. We were terrified. Then several hours after supper, here they came into the camp. How in the world did you make it? How in the world did you find your way? They said, well, we hiked the peak again. We went all the way back up to the top, got our bearings, and started over and came down the trail. That's what happens in the church. Yesterday we had a funeral here. Today we have a worship service. Next week we'll have a wedding. Who knows whatever else will happen in this sanctuary, on this campus, in this place this week, but we keep coming back to this place and it is in this worship service in particular that God resets us and gets us back onto the trail. The Spirit working by and with the Word in the context of the church, here's how I saw it happen, how I witnessed it so many years ago now. Two weeks after the 9-11 tragedy that we remember today, 
One of our young people went to New York. I got a job there as a young professional. She moved up there, moved in with her boyfriend. It was a place she thought of freedom, freedom to live the way she wanted to, freedom from somebody else telling her what to do on her weekends. And she heard the first crash into the first tower. She rushed to her window to look out because her boyfriend worked in those towers. With relief, she saw that as horrible as it was, that at least the plane had not hit the tower that he worked in. And then just a few minutes later, she saw the other plane hit his tower. He was killed. Two weeks later, I saw her come in the back after the worship service started. She came down the center aisle and she sat there in the other sanctuary where she always sat and she collapsed. And people moved in closer to her. They put their arms around her. And at the end of the service when everyone stood up, they swarmed her like white blood cells. We didn't talk that day, we've talked a lot since. But I could see it in her face. She had come home. God in his mercy had put reset. It's a horrible tragedy, it was a horrible loss, it was much to work back from, it was so much grief. But the Spirit worked effectively with the Word in the context of worship that day to convince her that God is good and God loves us and Jesus proves it. Let's pray together. Oh Lord Jesus, we thank you for our church. We thank you for each other. We thank you for the spirit who hovers over us and moves in and amongst us, especially in worship, to give us your word, to seal it to our hearts. Please convince us, O Lord, afresh that the Father demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. You are good and you are loving. Amen.